one and one. We're having some fun in the Tengu all day on episode six. This is Patrick Macias, author of Tokyo Scope. And I'm Matt Alt, author of Pure Invention. And this is our podcast, Pure Tokyo Scope. And this is episode six. And before we get right into it, I wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping here and mention that last episode, I said that Devin Aoki started a movie called Hots. And that's actually incorrect. The movie I was thinking of was called Debs which came out in 2004. And it's an acronym for four things I know nothing about, discipline, energy, beauty, and strength. So uh, like, I want to apologize personally to all the Devin Aoki otaku out there. Is this our first uh, official apology? Like, you know, pure Tokyo scope regrets the error. Yeah, we have to go to City Hall and like plank. What do they call that? What do they do? We know we, we, we should do the, you know, like whenever a Japanese company screws up, don't like the CEO and like the COO, they go on TV and like they bow, like they, they deeply bow. So we we're going to have to do that. Well, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of bowing going on out there because according to the news headline that I've got right here, Cool Japan Fund may be merged, eliminated if it does not improve. Terminated. Almost a decade after its founding, Cool Japan Fund Inc. may be merged with other investment funds or eliminated if it cannot turn around its losses soon. Matt, can you summarize the Cool Japan Fund for those of us joining the uh, universe in progress? So the Cool Japan Fund was set up about 10 years back, and it was the, the the kind of actual like financial arm of the Cool Japan Initiative, which kicked off in the government earlier in the 21st century when the Japanese powers that be realized that soft power was a thing. And you know, we should kind of, for those who might not be in in the in the know about this, soft power is the corollary to hard power. Hard power is like diplomacy by force. Like if you don't do something, we send in our tanks. Or like if you know when we want you to do something, we dangle subsidies or like huge amounts of money. It's basically about compelling somebody to do what you want. So wait, a bionic man is hard power, but a TV show about a bionic man is soft power. I was going to say, it's more like, you know, if we're talking Doraemon, like Doraemon is soft power, Jayan the bully is hard power. But, you know, Doraemon isn't really known in America, so we can't really use that, can we? Anyway, soft power is about getting the other side to like you. So it's about using the power of like your culture and your values and like the image you project to get your... I don't want to even use the word opponent here, but to get the other side to want the same outcomes you do. And Japan has this soft power in spades thanks to people loving its anime and movies and culture of all kinds. So the Japanese government kind of got wise to this after decades of like, you know, PTAs campaigning against anime and manga and like otaku being demonized in the media as, as child killers and, and worse. Although I don't really know what's worse than that, but they were getting demonized. And the Japanese government decided to go all in with this Cool Japan program. And then they monetized it by making a Cool Japan fund that was designed to kind of inject money into promoting various aspects of quote-unquote cool Japanese culture. Now, it's a lot of money. By the end of March 2022, the government had contributed a total of 106 billion yen, or about 789 million to the fund. So that's that's a lot of bread. That's a lot of loot cakes. So the Cool Japan Fund dates back to late 2013, when in this lavish ceremony held in Tokyo's Roppongi Hills, kind of setting the tone for this, the government announced that they would be funding it uh, or financing the Cool Japan Fund to the tune of 60 billion yen. So that's like a huge amount of money, right? 
And the whole point was to kind of boost companies selling Japanese cultural products, you know, and on the surface, this sounded really great. You know, it sounds really awesome. But the, the, the whole problem from the very beginning was that, you know, when the government is selecting or identifying what's cool, it's like almost by definition, like sucks all of the cool factor out of the room, so to speak. So there was this kind of like really diffuse focus on what they would pour money into and like really broad. So like cool, like what is cool about Japan is different to everybody, right? Like, my cool Japan is different from Patrick's cool Japan. Wouldn't you agree, Patrick? Yeah, the Manichi Shinbun only identifies cultural products such as anime and Japanese cuisine, such as, well, they don't say such as, but I'm imagining Top Ramen, uh, Cup Noodle. I don't know. I don't know. So that's, they say anime and food. That's it. So so here's the deal. In the initial initiative, there were, it was split into content, which is stuff like anime, you know, and and it's associated merchandising. So like toys and games were, were part of that. But there was also like clothing, like clothing and, and food was another thing. So it's like there's like a fashion component to it. And then there's also like services. So like the idea of like onsen, like, you know, going to a hot spring area could be viewed as a kind of cool Japan initiative by this. And then it was broken down even further to like local products. So like stuff local craftspeople were making. So like all of this stuff is cool, but the problem is when the, when the fund is kind of like trickling its money down to all of these huge wide array of, of producers, like no, it, it's really difficult for it to kind of brand itself. You know, can you think of anything that the Cool Japan Fund really like boosted and successfully? I can't. I can't think of one. There is a lot of stuff. There is some anime and stuff that they've poured money into, but nothing that's really been successful as a result, I think, of it. It's always been a pretty unpopular uh, program, the Cool Japan Fund, uh, in, like domestically and abroad. I think everyone likes to pat themselves on the back and go, you can't call yourself cool. You can't say that you're cool because that means you're not cool. And I think everyone would get tired if Cool Japan wasn't around to kick like that. But it's weird because on one hand, it's very unpopular. But on the other hand, you have to admit over the last 10 years, the value of things like anime has gone way up. And like yes. the number of tourists to Japan have gone way up. So in some indirect way, I don't know how closely those things are related, but since they started this fund, I, I would think there is more money on the table. It's a big question because like, you know, when they say the tourists numbers have gone up and they have, when you look at the breakdown, it's mainly tourists coming in from China uh, and, and Southeast Asia and, and Korea until recently. Korea's really dropped off on that front for a variety of reasons. But it's mainly Chinese coming into Japan. And that's great. But I don't know how much of that is driven by cool Japan. And how much of it is driven by the fact that like China is increasingly wealthy and people are looking for an interesting place to go on a vacation. So there's like not exactly it's not exactly clear what the what the what the kind of connection is there. But, you know, running in the background of this is a bunch of subsidies that actually, you know, my company took advantage of. Like there was all of these translation subsidies that were kind of underneath the auspices of this. And so a lot of content that otherwise would not have gotten translated into English did because of the Cool Japan Fund. And that's great because there's always like there's always room for more translations of, of content into other languages. And that content in turn does become a kind of cornerstone for Cool Japan. Like for instance, we were hired to translate a like a textbook about yokai that was written by one of the leading lights on the subject here. It's called an introduction to yokai culture uh, by uh, 
Kazuhiko Komatsu, Professor Komatsu, who's like a, a really kind of leading light on that. And then also when my company was involved in localizing Doraemon, uh, a big chunk of that was subsidized by uh, you know government kind of cool Japan funding. And it wouldn't have gotten done otherwise. Like when you're talking about massive, massive translation projects with huge amounts of you know page counts and stuff, it often is like a huge hurdle for these publishers to, to be able to get that content out, the back catalog out. So so it ain't all bad. No, there's definitely good aspects to it, you know. But the writing is on the wall because it says here at the end of fiscal 2020, the Cool Japan Fund had accumulated losses of 23.1 <laughs> billion yen, in part because sales at companies in which the fund was invested fell sharply due to the coronavirus pandemic. So Cool Japan Fund is in trouble, baby. And they're going to meet again this fall to decide whether to terminate it or to group it in with some other um, funds, some other means of financing. It. How does Pure Tokyo Scope get some of these funds? Are there, you know, we should we should just show up at the meeting like with our microphones and be like, you want cool Japan? I mean, what I've heard is if you take the money, basically like a guy in a suit who smells like an ashtray and like hair wax, just like... <laughs> is like lives with you permanently. Like he's, he's watches whatever you do. You can't go to the bathroom with that and peeking. You wake up in the middle of the night and he's standing over you. So like, uh, it sounds like it's a lot of red tape. It's not, it ain't free money. Is it true that if you're not, that if whatever you make isn't judged cool by the internet that you have to cut off a pinky? Is that true? I hope so. Uh, but I, it's difficult to imagine uh, after 10 years, uh, Japan without you know, all the cool Japan jokes. You know, one of the the big conundrums of, of cool Japan is, is that like cool factor, soft power is really like kind of grassroots and organically driven. So it's really difficult for to kind of top down, you know, dictate what's going to be cool or or to even predict what's going to be cool. And actually to the to the cool Japan funds credit, they never they never take a stance on what's cool. They're not trying to articulate like, oh kids, you should be following this. It's the next big thing. They're trying to put money into people who are making something that is going to be the next big thing. But you know, if if it was easy to do that, then like every content production company out there would be making the next I don't know uh, My Hero Academia or Demon Slayer or whatever you know Chainsaw Man or whatever the next big hit is. You know, actually one of, one of the really funny things about the whole Cool Japan initiative is like how much of Japan's cool factor is driven by stuff that's like anti-authoritarian and really edgy. You know, like it's it's really difficult for me to imagine like the government getting behind like Chainsaw Man and like cheering, you know, like this this comic about like a guy who literally turns into an anthropomorphic chainsaw and like like splatters the demon of the blood of demons everywhere. But then again, I guess you know the Korean government really threw its weight behind Parasite, which is a film that is sharply critical of Korean culture in a lot of ways. It's a really great movie. So maybe it is possible. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. There, there's not like an on-off switch for the funding for Cool Japan. I think there's going to be maybe a, a meeting or maybe several hundred meetings to decide what happens next. Well, the whole thing, it's always been so opaque. You know, like they publish a report every year saying like we invested in this stuff, but it's like so difficult for any real person on the street or even people who are in the industry to get an idea of what this fund is actually doing. And that has always been the case. So... Government boondoggle, like potential boost to Japanese cultural industries, you make the call. And on that note, we're going to cut to a commercial break and come back with our feature. What do supernatural beings in green tea have in common? Or primary school in miso soup? People around the world think they're cool. Each week, international guests join an expert panel and discuss what makes Japan so fascinating. This is going to be very popular in China, I can promise. 
Tune in for fun and insight on Cool Japan. Okay, so responding to a listener request, Mr. Jean Snow of Shanghai wanted to know more about uh, the time I appeared on a Japanese primetime TV show called Tamori Club. And this was way back in 2003, uh, almost 20 years ago. So uh, my memory is getting fuzzy and hazy. Why was it a big deal for him and for me? Well, Tamori Club is this show that's been on the air since 1982. Tamori is like one of these Japanese showbiz legends. Uh, some people say he's like the Japanese Johnny Carson or the Japanese. To me, he's more like the Japanese Letterman because uh, his TV show is cheap and will do anything for a laugh. Uh, Tamori Club does these like deep dives into obscure topics. Sometimes it's otaku. Sometimes they'll talk to stereo crazy people. Sometimes they'll pick a really obscure topic like like me, uh, a foreigner interested in Japanese pop culture, which I guess 20 years ago might have actually been pretty shocking. This is this is all pre like, you know, you know, why are you coming here, foreign person? And like all of these shows that now handle this on a regular basis. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. Tamori, and, and just to set the stage here, I mean, he looks like a gangster. Like he dresses in black suits. He has slicked back black hair and he wears sunglasses. I, I don't think he's ever been pictured without his sunglasses, has he? Uh, I think on some of his old album covers, because he also is a musician, he's he's multi-talented, and he has an eye patch on on some of those. Uh, maybe that's why he wears the sunglasses. I don't know if it's like an affectation or it's an actual medical thing, but I have never seen him without the sunglasses. It's just part of his look as I as I know him now, and most people know him now. So this was the first time I was on Japanese TV, and I have to say, they really threw me in the deep end here. Uh, what I remember about it is it was organized by um, Tomo Machiyama, who was the founding editor of Egehiho and, and a guy who's always kind of pushed me into the deep end of the pool on many occasions when it comes to stuff in Japan. His sister was the producer of a, a of Tamori Club. I don't know if she still is because the show is still on the air. She also produced another show um, called Tamba Club, which was a talk show hosted by Tetsuro Tamba, surrounded by girls in bikinis. And I'm like, that's the show I wanted to be on. Wow. If anyone has any copies of Tamba Club out there on video, please give me the hookup. Oh, so so we spent like weeks planning this show. It was a big deal because Tamori Club, I guess, is, is a big show. And uh, primetime, Tamori's like a showbiz legend. We spent weeks doing it. And when we got to the actual day of filming, like, where's Tamori? Where's Tamori? Tamori? Tamori doesn't even show up until the cameras are rolling. He doesn't know what the topic is. He doesn't know who I am. He, like, he hasn't even been briefed. He just like breezes in and goes, okay, what are we doing on camera? And right. like, oh, we found this guy from... America who likes Japanese stuff and he just starts making jokes and everyone starts making fun of me. And it was, uh, it was very awkward. It's uh, one of those things, but I, you know, awkwardness lives on. It, it doesn't stop. It only, it only ripens with age. No, I mean, that's amazing. You were literally on a primetime Japanese TV show before it was really common for, I'd call us visitors because there's like the whole class of like professional gaijin talents like Dave Spector and like all of those guys who dominated in the 80s and 90s. But you know, you weren't that. I'm not that. We're, we're just like average blokes who show up on random Japanese TV shows from time to time. So that was pretty pioneering, I think, for you. But you also have a few primetime TV horror stories in your pocket as well. Yeah. So actually, no, it's funny. My My like TV career here is, I think largely indebted to you because you were doing episodes of an NHK world show, which is aimed abroad called Tokyo Eye. 
and I believe you introduced me to the producer. I was a semi-regular on Tokyo Eye when they first started. Um, this must have been like 2005, 2006 or something Yeah, like it was that. something around then. And actually, you know, and that's a whole nother sort of television field. If you're talking about NHK World and kind of like foreign-facing shows, I did NHK World for a while, and that led into directly me doing Japanology Plus. Uh, with Peter Barracon, which I did and still kind of do uh, over the last five years. But we're talking here about like primetime Japanese TV. And there's kind of like a blood brain barrier, like being on NHK World or English language Japanese entertainment does not like get you a pass into being on mainstream primetime Japanese TV. That's like a much more difficult kind of bridge to pass. I, my first show was called Ego de Shibera Night and also hosted by Chris Pepler, who, who did uh, uh, Tokyo Eye. And I believe at that time it was him and, and Pakun who were hosting the show, if I'm not mistaken. Does that sound right? That sounds about right. They also had like a rotating group of uh, female co-hosts. And uh, when I was on the show, they saddled me with Shaku Yumiko, who is an actress model, um, as a prince would describe her. And uh, we went to Akihabara for the episode I did for Ego de Shabara Night. And at one point, she turned to me and said, hey, I heard you like Tokusatsu. Did you know I was in a Godzilla movie? And I said, lady, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, are you free for dinner tonight? No, 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 no. Uh, she was dressed in a maid costume. We went to a maid cafe with Patrick Harlan. I'll post some pictures on Twitter, although they're pretty cringy. Uh, what did you do on your episode? Wow, it was nothing that exciting. My God, I, my episode was uh, we were sitting at a sushi bar where Chris Pepler was the sushi chef, quote unquote, and he was serving up he was serving up difficult to translate Japanese terms, mainly aisatsu, like yoroshiku onegai shimasu or like otsukari sama desu, that are kind of set phrases in Japanese and don't have any easy way to instantly kind of translate into, into English. And it was really interesting because I, I remember my Japanese level, you know, I speak Japanese, but compared to people who have worked in like, Japanese companies for their entire careers. I'm not as fluid. And I was surrounded by people whose spoken Japanese was much better than I was. But then they ended up using more of my quips because I was speaking in much more compact sound bites. Like when you're when your linguistic skills aren't as high level in in early, you know, kind of when you're beginning to study, you usually tend to speak in pretty clipped short sentences. It just makes sense. And it turned out that was a better fit for TV <laughs> than a lot of these guys who were like really peacocking and like voguing and like, you know, showing off their Japanese skills whenever somebody would ask them a question. So it was kind of an eye opener. I got actually a little bit more screen time and that led to a couple of other uh, uh, opportunities. I wanted to ask about the other people who were on that episode with you. Is that Richard Berger I see in one of these photos? Do you know who Richard Berger is? No. Tell me about Richard Berger. I think Richard Berger is one of the evil people from the future in uh, Godzilla versus King Ghidorah from 1991. Oh. Uh, if you can confirm or deny this, it l sure looks like him in this photo. You know, I, I actually, it was a blur to me. I don't remember if that was him or not. It does look like him, doesn't it? There was a guy there who used to work. I remember the, it, it, this looks like him. Did he used to work at IBM? If that's the case, then this was definitely him. Yeah, look at this Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. 
he's uh, he's been in a bunch of other stuff too. Did he say anything about how in the future Japan was going to rule the world economically so that we had to bring monsters back in time from the future to destroy everyone? Again, I, I really, really, really wish I remembered. I was like, I was so terrified being on the show. I remember that. This usually happens when you're on like kind of like a, a high pressure show like that. It's fun that it happened, but uh, these are like weird memories. These are like repressed memories. Well, apparently I did well enough that I got invited to be on a couple of actual Japanese variety shows after that. And like I was in the audience for, well, the first one, the first one was like a Nikkei, it was on like the BS satellite network. It was like called Nikkei BS. So I was on that and like, you know, where I'm eating. I remember I had to eat and react to a Gari Gari Kun corn potage popsicle. And I was really curious what would happen if I said, this is gross, which is basically not so many words what I did. And I got my answer. They cut. Like, I didn't, they didn't make it into the final episode. So like, people are always, you know, people are always making fun of Japanese variety shows for like, you know, people are just like, they're, the, the participants are always just like eating food and saying how good it is. Why don't you like say what you really think, man? And the answer is, that's not what variety shows are for. They're not for saying what you really think. They're for saying something kind of It's funny. like literally too hot for TV when they do stuff like that. Yes. Well, what one of the things I, I realized, and you don't get this sense when you're watching variety shows, because they're what, like half an hour, an hour long? They roll the tape or video, whatever, for hours. You're like in the studio for like maybe three, sometimes even longer, three hours, sometimes even longer. And it's basically a battle royale among all of the participants to see who is going to say the funniest thing at any given time. And then basically at the end, they edit it all together. And the person who was the funniest kind of, you know, by default wins because they get the most airtime. So whenever you see these shows that like everybody's kind of laughing and like kind of giggling and have seem to be having a good time together, if you're an actual professional talent, like your kind of influence is measured by how much screen time you get. And so there's actually this kind of combat, this kind of verbal combat going on behind the scenes to kind of one up and like kind of take control of the conversations and things like that. And that was really interesting to me to see because you don't actually get that at all from the shows as they're finally cut and broadcast. So variety shows are really a way, I think, for these TV stations to hedge their bets and get the most interest. Because if you if you're if you put all your eggs in one basket with a single talent, they might not be on that day. But if you have like a bunch of them, chances are you're going to be able to edit together something halfway decent or funny or whatever. So that episode of Tomori Club ended up getting repeated a lot because there was apparently some hysterical gag in it about uh, public urination and the Beatles, I want to hold your hand that I can't really explain in detail. That episode got a lot of play. The Ego de Chabra Naito, that show was actually really big. It was a lot bigger than I thought it was, I seemed at the, at the time. And so at one point when I was flying into Japan, uh, they threw me into the detention center at Haneda Airport for whatever my visa was, you know, always questionable at best. And uh, one of the guys, one of the guards, one of um, the guys like in, in the death squad uniform said, hey, didn't I see you on Ego de Chabra Naito? Shaku Yumiko in the maid outfit. That was great, man. That you know, it's funny. I, I, I you you have no idea how big this stuff is because you're we're, we're foreigners, we're outsiders. So like we didn't grow up with Tamori Club or any of these shows, and so it's often tough for me to gauge how widely watched they are. But it's always funny when people come up to you afterwards. I was you know when I first started doing Japanology Plus. I, I was shocked by how many people like came up to me on the street and and said, "Oh man, I watched Japanology Plus." Like Japanese people, like who were watching it, I guess for like English lessons or something like that. So 
power of, you know, legacy media, man. Like it's, it's, you know, tempting to be like, oh, well, the internet's where it's at now. But, you know, legacy media, like radio in Japan anyway, and like TV is still really, really, really watched uh, by a lot of people. So it's, it's cool to do that kind of stuff when you can. Don't forget fax machines. The last time I did Japanese primetime TV was in 2008 on a show called uh, Mokusupe, which is like the Thursday special show. Um, I'd never heard of it before. And uh, I didn't do it in Japan. They sent a camera crew to San Francisco uh, to stay at my place for like a week. <laughs> and I have to explain, at this point, um, I was living in an apartment that, and my room looked like like a dirty bomb went off inside of Mandarake. Like, oh I'll God. post a picture of it on Twitter, dude. I'm pretty proud of it. And um, so they had to sleep in this room. Oh, they actually literally slept at your house? They literally slept at my house. And we went to Japantown. We hung out with cosplayers who thought they were Sailor Moon. I'm sure we ate some mediocre ramen somewhere and they threw it on TV. And it was uh, pretty weird, man. Um, I have like no memory of what the actual broadcast footage was like. It's it's just so, it's so amazing to me to imagine like an entire Japanese film crew so like low budget that they're literally crashed on the floor of your house. Like were they, were they trying, were they hoping for some kind of, okay, Hey, Patrick's woken up. It's two 30 in the morning. What's he doing? They weren't filming the whole time. It, it wasn't some kind of experiment in terror. They weren't filming the whole time. I forget how this was arranged. If like I offered to put them up at my place or if they didn't have any money, I understand the Japanese economy has been kind of pretty bad for like the last 30 years. Well, how many so were there? How, how many were there? It was just two guys. They were two young guys. It was like three's company. They came and knocked on my door. They took a step that was new. Uh, we got drunk. You know, we might have gotten around to an Irish pub and did some dancing, like um, Coyote Ugly style. I don't know. Did, did, did you ugly cry when it was all over? Was it like really? <laughs> You're like, you just had to let that, like all that emotion go. I, uh, I Hats off to you, man. I don't think I'd be able to survive with the Japanese film crew crashed on my floor for 48 solid hours. That sounds a little bit like, I don't know, like one of those escape rooms or like Saw, you know, like one of those, one of those survival horror movies. Well, if you like survival horror movies, you should definitely um, try to check out our old clips on Japanese TV. If you can find them, they might still some be somewhere out there on YouTube or uh, the, the dark web. Maybe we can release them on VHS tape like uh, Girls Gone Wild or like uh, Bum Fights or something like that. We can collect them all in one place. You know, it's it's actually tough to see this content anymore because Japanese broadcast you know channels are so obsessive about issuing takedown orders to content on YouTube. So there's very little of it up there, even stuff that's like 10. 15 years old. I'm fine with that, actually. <laughs> like, I don't I don't want to look back. I don't want to see what's in the cracked rear view mirror, man. I just got to keep going forward. Yeah. That's why we're doing a podcast now and not TV. I actually kind of stopped saying yes to these uh, requests because they ended up being like kind of, I got tired of being the, like the wacky otaku gaijin on TV. Like they would always want to send a crew to film your house. They'd always want to kind of frame you as being this kind of wild freak. Yeah, I remember in one of the last ones I did, Shitoko, the show is called. It's like an Osaka-based variety show. And they were very, you know, the, the, the people who I worked with on camera and everything were very nice. But like they wanted me to do things like sing the yokai watch theme song and do the dance like in Yodabashi cameras, like toy aisle and stuff like that. And like, you know, it, it's fine doing that stuff maybe when you're like in your kind of thirties or whatever, and you just, you get really tired of it after a while. And so now I, I've stopped doing any of these appearances unless it's about like, I don't know, 
something a little bit more intellectually engaging. Like, hey, Matt, you wrote a book. You want to talk about that or something? You know, there's two ways of, of becoming a talent here in Japan. One is just doing it like we do it, which is just kind of like ad hoc and catch as catch can when some producer comes to you. The other way is actually registering for a talent agency. But like once you do that, it's your job. Like you can't say no. You have to you have to say yes to every you know, appearance, everything they, they, they send you on. And I definitely don't have any aspirations of becoming a full-time uh, foreign talent here. You know, and hats off to those who do. You can't say no. And also you have to give over like 90% of your earnings. So it's basically like a pimp ho relationship. My right. understanding is exactly. correct. You know, Patrick, pimps don't know love like normal people. And it's very much the case, I think, with these Jimmy show and the, and the talents underneath them. They, they just... You know, you're, it's a kind of a semi-dysfunctional relationship, I think. Well, that's beautiful. So that wraps it up for this episode of the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast. The next episode, we're going to have our very first guest, Mr. Vincent Shortino, the founding CEO of Crunchyroll Japan. He's going to go off on the anime industry and disrupt it and uh, just go nuts, hopefully. So if anyone uh, wants to send us comments, questions, ideas for new episodes, things they want to hear, let us know on Twitter. We're pretty easy to find. uh, And we'll see you all next week. from Akihabara, place in the global spotlight. Otaku, anime, manga, figurine freaks, Akiba is where they gather. Our reporter is Patrick Macias from the United States. Patrick first saw anime and manga in America at the age of six. He's been an otaku for 30 years now. And he fell in love with Japan and finally came here five years ago. Now he's a writer on Japanese pop culture. Patrick is deeply into the amazing Akiba trend called maid cafes. 